our study into Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 6. Um, and um, my piece of the jigsaw today is he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. As you can see, we're having problems. We, we can't get the screen to work properly, so you are kind of seeing the, the build view rather than the slideshow view. But anyway, I think it, hopefully it'll be big enough for us to see. So uh, I know the technical problems. Okay, um, so let's just um, read uh, Isaiah, just that verse one, really. And we've, um, we've read through a whole lot of it at the very beginning. I think um, last week Trevor read through it. So I'm just going to read the verse uh, that we are looking at today. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This is in Isaiah 61. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. Okay, now this we know is the scripture that Jesus read part of in, when we read it in Luke 4, uh, in the synagogue, in Nazareth, and he finished by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And before I get into this particular verse, I just wanted to read something. Now, I don't normally do this, and, and, I, and it, comes, it's kind of be, it can be difficult to read things from the book. But I wanted to read something to you, because it gave, for me, a great context to what it was that Jesus brought. And it, and it opened my eyes to some of the things uh, that I hadn't kind of possibly understood. And so I'm just going to read you something. It's uh, from the book of what Jesus started by Steve Addison. I'm just going to read you a couple of pages. And um, it gives, if you like, a context to when Jesus came and brought these scriptures. Um, and it says this, but I'm going to get my glasses because I think I might read it back if I've got them in the moment. Okay. It says, obviously, Jesus was born in Bethlehem around 5 BC. He grew up in Nazareth, a town of just a few hundred people. A town of just a few hundred people in Lower Galilee. In Jesus' day, the region of Galilee was a Jewish enclave surrounded by centres of pagan Greek culture left over from the conquests of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. Rome was now the ruling power, but the Greek language, culture and religion continued to dominate. The population of the region was mixed, with most Jews living in the countryside and Gentiles living in the cities and border towns. Galilee was no backwater. It had two major Greek cities, Sephoris and Tiberias, of about 10 to 20,000 people each. I mean, that's Dorchester, isn't it? Okay, we're probably about 50,000. Dorchester's probably about 20,000. You know, big enough to have a Weatherspoons. Yeah? Maybe even a college, yes. 
Um, <laughs> a few miles from Nazareth was the great highway that stretched from Egypt to Syria. Along it flowed a constant stream of Greeks and barbarians, as well as Roman soldiers. <coughs> Sepphoris, an hour's walk from Nazareth, was rebuilt by Herod Antipas as his capital in 4 BC. Tradesmen were in high demand. <coughs> Jesus would be apprenticed to his father, a tradesman who worked in timber, stone and metal. Jesus was raised in a devout Jewish home as a boy. He attended the synagogue each Sabbath with his parents, brothers and sisters. Jesus grew up speaking Aramaic and at the age of five, probably began learning to read the Torah, the first five books of Moses, in Hebrew at the village synagogue school. Galilee was fertile and supported a population of 200,000 people living in 175 towns and villages. The region was the breadbasket of Palestine and wheat was a major commodity. Wine from Galilee was exported to Phoenicia. Northern Galilee produced and exported olive oil. Tiberias was well known for its textiles, pottery and glass, while Gennesaret was noted for its date palms and fruit trees. Fishing was a thriving business in Galilee and salted fish was exported far and wide. Despite this abundance, however, most Jews in the countryside lived a hard life. Roman rule meant that agricultural land was hard to retain. The problem began back in 34 BC when the Romans installed Herod I or Herod the Great as king over Judea and Galilee. Herod was corrupt, wealthy and ruthless. He murdered anyone suspected of opposing him. Two high priests, an uncle, his mother-in-law, three of his sons <laughs> and his favourite wife. Within one generation, Herod I had rebuilt Jerusalem and transformed the holy city into a Greco-Roman capital. Under the rule of Herod and his sons, Israel was a divided society. Herod surrounded himself with nobles, wealthy landowners, military commanders, and the religious ruling families who controlled the temple in Jerusalem and the position of high priest. The local elite submitted itself to Roman rule and promoted Greek culture and values. Remember, this is in the Jewish land. Supporting their, the elite were their officials, bureaucrats, tax collectors, military officers and judges. These men enforced Herodian rule over the rest of society, which was divided into roughly three groups. The first group included self-employed merchants, craftsmen, fishermen and farmers who owned their own land. Then there were landless peasants who had lost their land through taxes, <coughs> failure and debt. On the outer fringes of society were the beggars, prostitutes and bandits. Herod the Great's son perpetuated these divisions. Herod Antipas controlled Galilee during most of Jesus' life. He introduced Greek culture and values to the dismay of the ordinary people who sought to be faithful to Israel's covenant. Herod Antipas' luxurious palace in Tiberias was filled with Gentiles and decorated with idolatrous images. The rural Jewish population longed for Yahweh to bring deliverance for his people. This was the setting 
of Jesus' mission. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Favor. Jesus came proclaiming good news to the poor, not just the economic poor, but also those rejected as unclean, including camel drivers, shepherds, shopkeepers, butchers, goldsmiths, tax collectors, peddlers, and tanners. So you see, we get a bit of a context. I found it really interesting. The things that I didn't know about uh, that area and about Nazareth. Um, and we get a context of what Jesus is speaking into. We've got a people who are surrounded by everything, if you like, that they despise. They felt voiceless, they felt powerless. They wanted to be faithful to God. But their rulers, and even their political rulers, were leading them along a path that was completely alien to their culture. And so it's in that context that Jesus preaches, I've come to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim freedom. When Isaiah prophesied, it was to a people who were looking on as the threat of Assyria, this major world power around them, was growing. And in that, as they saw Assyria growing around them, getting more and more powerful, so Isaiah prophesied captivity for them, captivity into Babylon. That was what was being prophesied. But also, good news to the poor was being prophesied, and a time of God's favour was also being prophesied. So there was, a there, there was a prophecy coming, you're going to get taken into captivity, but there will come a day when the faith of the Lord will be upon you, when good news will be preached to the poor. That was the context of the original prophecy in Isaiah. And the prophecy and the promise was to those who would be broken-hearted at their captivity into Babylon, just as Jesus was <coughs> speaking to those who were broken-hearted at all that they saw going on around them in Judea at that time, with the Roman occupation. But it's interesting to note that... Hang on, too far. Jesus did not say when he read that scripture, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. That bit is missing from what Jesus said. And I'll be honest, I don't know why that is. I, I tried to look into it, I tried to investigate it, and I found no convincing explanation. But for me, it was of interest that it's not recorded in Scripture that Jesus said these words, I've come to bind up the broken hearted. 
Unless, of course, you read the King James Version. It's in the King James Version, but it's in no other version. And that might be because the King James Version was translated from Latin, um, and some of the other more recent uh, translations have been translated from perhaps uh, better sources. Greeks, the Greek source, and maybe even Aramaic sources, I don't know. But every more recent, and I think it's generally acknowledged that there were some various errors in the translating of the King James Version. So the King James Version, it, it does say, uh, Jesus does read, does say, find up the brokenhearted, but not in any other version. And in fact, more than that, you will see nowhere in the New Testament that expression. So, I sort of had to ask the question, did Jesus say this, but it just didn't get recorded by Luke, which is being a bit economic with his words, didn't write it down? Was it written on the scroll that Jesus was handed, but Jesus bypassed it, didn't read that bit? Was he given a scroll and those words weren't written on that scroll? I don't know. I just find it significant that, that Jesus didn't speak. According to any of, the, any of the versions, probably unless you're reading a King James Version, you will not find in Jesus' uh, you know, what he says at the synagogue in Luke 4, he does not say, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. As I said, you won't find brokenhearted anywhere in the New Testament. It's used four times in the Old Testament, in three Psalms and in Isaiah 61. They're the only four times that the word brokenhearted is used in Scripture. Three times it's used of God caring for his people, caring, binding up, caring for the brokenhearted, and once it's used about evil people who do not care for the brokenhearted. No, they're evil, they do not care for the brokenhearted. Three times it's used. And there are only seven times, nine times if you read the ESV, seven times where the word, words bind up are used. None of those are in the New Testament either. They are all in the Old Testament. On one occasion, it refers to the binding up, it's in Isaiah, it talks about bind up the scroll. It's the scroll of warnings and it's to be bound up and, and I assume it's bound up so that nobody can open it and alter it until the time comes for it to be fulfilled. So one occasion it's binding up scrolls, the rest of the time it's binding up wounds and bruises, the injured and the brokenhearted. Six times. So we've got, we've got a phrase here, bind up the brokenhearted, that was written and spoken by Isaiah, but wasn't spoken by Jesus. And I find that interesting. And as I say, I couldn't find any great scholarly work that told me why that was the case. But what I have found is that there are passages that speak of wounds and healings with a mindset that wounds and brokenness come from God, if you like, as a punishment, but God then also binds 
and heals. And that this is all a process, part of the process of being given by God in the Old Testament, given by God what we deserve, which is brokenness. But because he is, even in the Old Testament, we see that actually he is a loving father. So he brings wounds, but he also brings healing. So it's rather like we might punish a child but with the aim, obviously, to bring out the best in them and for them. Not because we're angry, with, not because we hate them, but because we love them. We want to bring the best out in them, and so sometimes we have to punish them. So, for example, in Isaiah 30 to verse 26, it says, The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. He inflicts, but he heals. In Job, Job says this, Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And then in Hosea, it says this. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Radical, isn't it? Extreme. He has torn us to pieces but he will heal us. He's injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. So there may be actual significance in the fact that Jesus appears not to have used the words bind up the brokenhearted. It's possible that the words that we read in our Bibles as broken-hearted meant something different to the Hebrew mind of that day. It's possible that it carried with it a very much Old Testament use of the word. That it's, we, we call it broken-hearted and we know what we mean by broken-hearted. We can be broken-hearted. But it might be the case that actually this word meant something different for them. And that it carried with it a sense of the brokenness and the sorrow that comes from being punished by God for our sin and then also to be made whole afterwards. It may be that it carried a sense of a brokenness that comes because God punished us for our sins. And therefore, it would not be a New Testament concept. It would not be what we believe in the New Testament of what God is like. That was how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. And even there we see his love, of course, because he injures, but he heals. 
But in the New Testament, he doesn't, he doesn't put punishment upon us in that way. This would not be a New Testament concept. In this new covenant that Jesus was about to bring in, we would no longer be punished for our sins if we would indeed repent of them. We will not be punished for our sins because Christ has taken the punishment completely for our sins. We are no longer punished for our sins. Christ has taken that upon himself on the cross. If we will repent and believe, our sins are taken from us, removed as far as east is from the west. We read that in Isaiah also. That's what grace is. It's giving us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness and freedom from the punishment for sin. We don't get that anymore if we believe in Christ. So this word is, if you like, there may be significance in the fact that Jesus did not use this word and this expression because it was not in the covenant that he was about to bring in. So if it is indeed the case that Jesus didn't read that I've been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, as I say, it may be because these words carry a particular meaning that no longer apply. Yes, we know God disciplines and he chastens those he loves. Hebrews 12. Yes, he disciplines, he chastens, but he doesn't tear us to pieces. He doesn't strike us in the way that these Old Testament readings seem to suggest. It's not harsh. It's not the harsh punishment that the Old Testament seems to indicate. Now I stress, I'm speculating here. Please allow for the fact that I might be wrong. Okay? I'm open to that. But at the very least, I think it's interesting that it doesn't appear that Jesus used these words when he read from the scroll of Isaiah. I find that interesting. I find it interesting that these words are only New Testament words. Find out the brokenhearted only appears in the Old Testament, never appears in the New Testament. Now, does Jesus bind us up and heal us? Yes, he does. He went around healing many people. He heals today. He makes us new. He adopts us as his children. You can't get more healed and whole than being adopted as a child of God. Yes, he does heal. He does bind up our brokenness in the way that we would understand binding up the brokenhearted. Yes, he does. He does do that. And it's perfectly in line with what we know about Jesus to tell people who we meet who are feeling bruised and broken that Jesus is there for them and he will bind up their hurts and despair. I think that's perfectly in line with everything we know about Jesus. He's there for you right now. 
And if there's anyone here who feels at this moment broken-hearted for whatever reason, well, after this preach, there will be those who will make themselves available to pray with you if you want prayer. If you are feeling broken-hearted in the sense that we can understand that word in our culture, in our time, in our day, then I believe that Jesus is there for you to heal your broken heart. I believe that's true. But I did wonder how many of us at times actually identify with that Old Testament concept of God's punishment upon us. I wonder, is there anyone even now who feels that God has injured them in his anger and they're now crying out to God to relent and hold back and forgive and restore? Is there anybody who feels, oh, you know, I feel God is punishing me? If so, let me tell you that you've got it all wrong and you've got God all wrong. God is not like that. The God who is revealed to us in Jesus is not wrathful or vengeful towards us who believe in his name. And Jesus has made provision so that whoever believes in him shall have their sins forgiven, they shall not perish, but they shall have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall have all of their sins forgiven and all of the punishment that was due to them will now be placed on Jesus on the cross. If you think that you are being punished by God for your sin, think again. If you're a believer, think again. Disciplined and chastened, possibly. Punished, definitely not. That's not the God who is revealed to us in Jesus. And if there is this Old Testament concept of God bruising us and healing us, tearing us and placing us back together, it's not what God does in Jesus. The tearing apart was done to Jesus on the cross. The bruising was done to Jesus on the cross so that we don't have to. If you're not a believer though, the Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And if you feel, you're not a Christian, but you feel in your heart there's some sorrow, you're not happy with how you're living your life, there's sin, then those feelings of discontent, those feelings of something's not right, are put there by God to help lead you to repentance and the forgiveness of God. In Jesus, there's no more punishment, there's no more bruising, broken-heartedness can be lifted, grace and love and mercy can come in. And the door to that grace and love and mercy, as we know, is that you repent and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what we were telling people out on the street yesterday, so if you repent, and believe in Jesus, he'll forgive you for all of your sins and make you brand new. That was what we were telling people on the street yesterday. What a great message to be taking to people. If you repent, 
turn and do things God's way, believe on Jesus, he'll make you a brand new person, forgive you for all of your sins. As I say, there must be at least 15 people or more that listened to that message yesterday, maybe for the first time, maybe for some of the part of the process, they'll hear it from other people. We can only entrust the seed of the word into people's hearts and see what God does with it. So, before James just comes back and leads in a, a song of worship, I just want to ask, is there anyone today who needs to repent and believe on Jesus Christ who's never done it before? Um, assuming as I look around, that's probably not the case. But I make that feel that. But is there anyone who does believe, but does also believe the lie? that God is punishing them. They feel that they've done something and God is angry with them and God is punishing them. They need to repent of that and you need to receive grace and mercy from God who loves you and has placed all of your sins upon Jesus on the cross. And is there anyone who's just feeling broken-hearted in that normal sense of the word, in the way that we would use it in our culture, broken-hearted. We just need prayer. And need someone to come alongside them and say, I understand, I'm feeling broken-hearted, but I want to stand with you, I want to pray with you, I want to strengthen you, I want to see God lift you up. If there's anybody that wants to respond in any way, 